You're listening to Creatives Making Money, the podcast for creatives who are on a mission to do the work they feel most called to do and make some money while they do it. This is a show for the makers, the dreamers, the doers, the creators, the artists, the crazy ones, and the ones who are determined to consciously build the life and career of their dreams. Here, we don't just believe in getting your dream job, we believe in creating it. So what does creative success even look like? How do we live a fully expressed, abundant AF life? That's precisely what we're here to find out. My mission with Creatives Making Money is to conduct 100 interviews with successful creatives and those who love and support them about money, career, and the process of making and doing what they most love, including all of the ups, downs, and in-betweens. I'm your host, Jamie Jensen, writer, storyteller, filmmaker, serial entrepreneur, and shameless creator. No matter where you are in your creative and financial journey, I'm here to help you create like you mean it. Hello and welcome to the Creatives Making Money podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Jensen, and with me today is the incredible Suzanne Paulinski. Um, Suze graduated from Drexel University and co-founded Mad Dragon Records, which was an active student-run label at Drexel. So awesome. And she also worked in sales at both Atlantic Atlantic Records and Astrolex. Am I saying that right? Astroworks. Astroworks, before becoming a paralegal and completing her master's in psychology. Um, now, as the rock star advocate, that's Suze's incredible brand, she is a mindset coach for musicpreneurs, and she creates custom time management solutions that help her clients gain clarity on their goals and maintain a healthy work-life balance. So I'm so excited to speak to her today. She also has her first book, um, her first book, which is already out, The Rockstar Life Planner, is a weekly planner that is designed specifically for creatives. So I highly recommend all listeners pick that up to help them manage their time and, and nail that work-life balance. And her upcoming book will empower creatives to make decisions as the CEOs of their own careers. So, so badass. Thank you, Suze, <laughs> for sharing your brilliance with us today. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> so something fun is that Suze and I um, are both from New York. Holla. <laughs> Holla. <laughs> we've had a lot of we've had a lot of fun times together, um, hanging out and being fellow entrepreneurs. And what's really cool about Suze, in case you haven't picked this up from her bio already, is that she really kind of um she stands right at the precipice of like music industry and like psychology and mindset work. And so all of the goodness that she brings to her clients is with this kind of dual expertise in both areas, which I think is just super, super cool. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, so just out of curiosity, what inspired you to start the Rockstar Advocate? Yes, it was uh, twofold, actually. Um, so I had been in the business uh, for about maybe eight or nine years at the time, and I was kind of over it. I, I was done. I didn't want to do it anymore. And I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And whenever I get to a spot where I don't know what I want to do next, I always look towards education. So I went back to school and got my master's in psychology. 
And I actually thought I would leave the music industry and be a social work, a social worker. Um, and I interned at a couple of different places. Um, and I, like I worked at a mental hospital and um, a high school. And I realized I'm not cut out for being a social worker. It's incredibly, incredibly difficult work. And I just couldn't leave my work at work. I brought a lot of stuff home with me emotionally. And it was, it was just a lot. Um, so I realized that maybe what I've learned and what I've been trained in could help, you know, maybe um, if I went back to the music industry, I could take what I've learned and help musicians in a different way than I was helping them before, which is more with like marketing and, and branding and sales and stuff like that. So um, it actually ended up reinvigorating my love for the music industry when I saw it through this new lens. Um, and the second reason um, that I decided to do this was that, I mean, as you had said, we're both, you know, New Yorkers. And um, I, <laughs> there's this culture of, you know, being a workaholic and going, you know, 150 miles an hour with everything we do. And um, in uh, 2013, uh, I came down with Lyme disease. And finally, after years and years and years of everybody saying to me, slow down, slow down, you know, I'd work three, four jobs at a time. I would, you know, take on everything at once. And they said, slow down, slow down, slow down. And finally, I had to slow down. And I actually built a business faster <laughs> than any of the work I had ever done before by sleeping and getting at least eight hours of sleep and, you know, working in very condensed, focused um, little sprints rather than working 24-7 and pulling all-nighters. And so once I was really able to trust that, then I knew I had to try to convince as many musicians as possible to trust it too because I realized that it worked and I realized that the way I was living my life beforehand, the way a lot of musicians do it, where it's the grinding and the hustling and the proving how, how much you want it, that doesn't work. So that also combined with getting my master's around the same time uh, really propelled me in this direction. Can you, it's so funny that you, it's just like, I love that you're, that we, that you're even bringing up this, like, you know, when you're in New York, everybody's working all the time and we're grinding and that's like the thing Like, what are you do doing? You gotta be working. What are you doing? Everybody in New York is like always so busy. And I've, I've on a few occasions made the joke that the title of my memoir would be slow the fuck down. Yeah, <laughs> like that would be the title of my memoir where yeah. I write a memoir. If I ever got a tattoo, that's what it would say. Yeah. yeah, totes. So that's like, so you basically really learned the hard way because you got Lyme disease and you were yeah. like, all right, I guess I got to slow the fuck down. Yeah, like for real. And it was just so I was just talking to one of my clients about it before because I actually they were on the camping trip with me when it happened. And um, they always say how bad they feel. And I cracked up laughing. and I said, don't like I was not listening to the universe and the university needed to teach me a lesson and I fully embrace it. Like I really do. I don't regret it. I don't feel sorry for myself. Like I really do embrace, like I had to learn somehow and this has been, you know, a blessing in disguise in its own way. So. Mm, that's so interesting. Do you find that your clients have little kind of, I want to call them like universal interference, even though that doesn't feel like the right word to use. Um, but when you work with people, do you, are there, do they have kind of external circumstances that, um, kind of impact their relationship with their work and they're like, 
Because what's interesting is what we're talking about right now is is relationship with work. Yes. Um, and like workaholism and like that, that, that that's a culture. Um, but something that you touched on was that musicians, you know, that that's, that they're kind of widely taught that they have to like prove how badly, how badly they want it by like being the hardest working artist right. they can be. Is that, would that, would you say that that's kind of like accurate? 100%. I mean, when I worked at the major labels and I was going through a really tough time personally, and I mean, I would work 15 hour days, mind you, I was only making 25,000 a year and I you know, 15 hour days would go by and I'd be like, okay, I, like I need a day off. And they're like, you want a day off? Great. Cause there's plenty of people outside that would take your job for free. And in fact, when I finally did quit the major labels, they hired the intern that I trained, but they still kept them on as a non-paying intern for about another eight months before they paid them for my full-time job. Um, so they, you know, there is definitely a culture of prove how much you want it. And we're going to you know, make you feel as if you should be thanking us for treating you so poorly. Um, and that's definitely what you learn in this business. And it doesn't need to be that way. And if nobody has taken notice yet, labels are failing. So we don't need to run by their models anymore. And, you know, I definitely get clients. It was, it was an uphill battle a couple of years ago to sell this, you know, to sell mindset coaching to musicians because, they're like, well, no, I'm fine. I have alcohol. Like, I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm, self, <laughs> I'm self-sustaining with my substance abuse. I'm fine. Um, and it was finally, you know, as the self-care movement is happening, and thank God for people like Ariana Huffington, um, I do get calls a lot more lately. Like, okay, I just went through a horrible breakup, and I'm try- I need to go on tour. And I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Like, can we talk? Or, you know, I just, I've been depressed for a really long time and I've like, I've reached, I've hit a wall. I can't function like this. Can we talk? Like they always end up coming to me, even though I've warned them before that point, mm-hmm. but I know better than anybody. You can't tell anybody anything. They have to figure that out for themselves. So I definitely get a lot of clients where they come to me after they've hit a wall and they're like, okay, there has to be a better way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like sad that it has to get to that point. Right. Um, but that's kind of their, their moment, their defining moment on yeah. some level with like where they realize they, they need help, they need yeah. support and that you have that special sauce <laughs> that can support them, <laughs> which is so awesome. Yeah. What do you, what is, what's like the first thing you find you typically work on with people when they come and they're like, okay, you know, I, something needs to change. This isn't working for me. You know, I'm, losing it or I just can't handle it this way anymore. Like, what do you, what's, do you have like a process that you find you typically walk people through? Is there kind of a first step? What does that look like? Yeah, I do. It's, it's funny that you say that. Um, it's a great question. The thing that I've realized, and this is kind of what inspired my second book that I'm working on. I haven't quite come up with a title, but it is about empowering, um, creatives to make decisions and be the decision maker in their career. Um, I've realized that a lot of the anxiety, a lot of the depression and a lot of just, I get, I hear all the time, even if they don't say they're anxious or depressed, I hear all the time, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know my next steps. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. And so I always ask them at the very beginning, I say, what do you want from your music? Like, what do you want? And it's interesting. A lot of them, it's 50% either have no clue. So I help them on like unpack the layers and figure it out. Or the other 50% just go to the default and they're like, well, I want to get signed by a label. 
And then my second follow-up question is, well, why? And then they say, oh, I have no fucking clue. Like, I don't know. But they just know, like, isn't that the end goal? And isn't that what you do? You you perform and then a label signs you and then they make everything better, right? And it's like, no, (laughs) the label is not going to build your career. They're going to give you a loan uh, with a very high interest rate. And then you are still responsible for building your career. So um, I start them, I always start off with, well, what do you even want? Because most of them are so overwhelmed because they never even took a minute to think about it. They just know that they like making music. And so it's almost like a game of Pong where they just keep going until they hit a wall and then they bounce somewhere else and then they go and somebody tells them to go do something else and then they go in that direction and then something else happens and then they follow that direction. They never really complete anything and they never really have a plan. They don't think through like a bigger picture. So they're just, I always say they're always reacting instead of acting or Mm -hmm. reviewing what they've done to move forward. Um, So that's always where I start. I say, why do you even want to be here? Mm-hmm. What, what comes up when they realize that they like haven't even been that intentional about their career? Yeah. A lot of them kind of, they laugh. Like it's, it's a little bit of nervousness, like mixed in with like, Oh my God, like, how did I, how have I not asked myself that question yet? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and it's amazing to them. Wow. I never stopped to think about that or wow. I didn't think my, opinion of what I wanted to do mattered. I thought I just had to follow what the industry told me to do. Um, And it's amazing. They kind of just realize how much power they have and they never really thought about it and that they have the permission. They don't need permission from anybody else. They, They can make the calls themselves. And a lot of them have never felt that way. And I think it's a lot of what you know, our culture within this industry and many creative industries kind of, you know, already teach us that, you know, you got to want it and you got to prove yourself and and it kind of beats you down and you think like you're working for this higher power that you owe everything to and that you'll, you know, sell your life for just to make it instead of, well, what do I want? What are, you know, what, how can I work within my terms? And they, it literally like, blows their mind most of them like they've just never stopped to think of it that way so there's always like a big pause after we get through that question and they're like huh okay what's next (laughs) like let's keep this going um so that's usually majority of, of my clients have that moment it's just so interesting because it's so true. It's like there is this myth that it's like the person, you just have to want it badly enough and you just have mm-hmm. to like show that you want it and it's the wanting it and the and like the taking act, the desperate right. suffering action you take to prove that you want it worse than anyone else who could want it that will get you there. But like they don't even have a why they right, want it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which is it's just, it's interesting. I I definitely had moments like that earlier in my career as a creative and I identify with that. So I'm sure that, I'm sure that this will be very resonant for a lot of people um, who might be in a space of like, but I just want it so bad, you know, isn't that enough? And it's like, yeah, it's enough (laughs) until it slowly kills you. 
Right. And that's why like, I love, like, I know it's a little kitschy, but that's what I, why I love the term musicpreneur. Um, because you really do have, I never truly saw myself as an entrepreneur. I had a couple of businesses before this one that failed epically. Um, and I never really got anything off the ground with them because I was in the wrong mindset and a very good friend of ours, Jordana Jaffe, which is how I came to meet you and so many other wonderful badass women. Um, I had met her just very like through a networking thing, like almost 10 years ago. And we kept in touch, but I was like, yeah, like you're an entrepreneur. Like I'm in the music industry, but you're an entrepreneur. And I saw it as totally separate things. And then finally, you know, I was talking to her one day and she's like, just let me help you. <laughs> like I hired her as my coach and I finally understood. She would tell me so many times, you know, how to make money from my passion and how to create services and how to be of service to these musicians. And I would tell her all the time, Jordana, that's so sweet of you. You don't understand this industry. Like this is never going to work. This is the music industry. And finally she's like, you need to stop acting like it's this foreign animal. <laughs> like mm -hmm. It's still a business and mm -hmm. it's still, you are an entrepreneur and you have to own that or this is never going to work. And as soon as I, took my head out of my ass and realized that then I was doing this full time. Um, and that, that's really what I want to help musicians do. And that was a big lesson for me. How did you end up in the music industry in the first place? Like what guided you to music? Yeah, I always wanted to. I mean, I remember my, my parents, when I was like five years old, actually took me to Disney world to audition for the music, uh, the Mickey mouse club. Um, we had no idea that you had to be at least eight years old. Um, and we had no idea what it even involved, but I was just obsessed with kids who sang and danced and I just wanted to be like that, except I was incredibly shy. So even if they did let me audition, I'm sure I would have blown it. Um, and after all of that, and I just started following, you know, I wanted to be Janet Jackson's backup singer. And then I wanted to be like Russell Simmons. And then you know, there was always something about the actual business and the behind the scenes that always interested me. And oddly enough, it was really like a scene out of Harry Potter. Like this postcard just kind of like found its way onto my desk uh, when I was in high school. And it was from Drexel University. I had never heard of that school before. It was in Philadelphia. And they had just started a brand new music industry program. And it said like, do you want to learn the business? Do you want to own your own company in the music industry? I was like, yes, I do. And that's it. I was like, it was just decided. I applied, I got in and it was pretty much the only application I submitted. <laughs> and um, I was the first graduating class in their music industry program. And I realized I didn't have to perform on stage in order to be in this industry that I found so intriguing. So I studied contract law and I studied um, management and touring and um, branding and marketing and all that stuff. And that's pretty much it just kept rolling from there. Mm. What do you think you, well, like, what was your biggest lesson from that period of time in your life? Like where you transitioned from thinking about being a performer to thinking about all the ways that you could support, support performers really. And like participate in the creation of their, of like music. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I think I realized, um, pretty much towards the end of high school, before I even got to Drexel. Um, actually, it's a perfect uh, example was I was in every single production, both drama club and musical that my high school had put on. 
And I was never the lead because I'd always get too scared. Of, like I'd always blow like the last bit of my audition. So I was good enough to get in, but they didn't trust me, um, trust me enough to give me like a lead part. And I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And then showtime would come. And I remember, I think like in ninth grade or 10th grade, NSYNC was coming through uh, New York and they happened to be playing like the night of our performance. And without even giving it a second thought, I went up to the director and I said, you're cool if I miss like the first show, right? Because like, I really want to go see NSYNC. And she was like, are, are you high? Like, what do you talk? No. And you're in the play. What do you, this is, this is the whole point. <laughs> and I realized I was like, oh, no, I don't really care about the performance. I love, I love the rehearsing. I love watching everyone's craft. I love watching them build the sets. I love this, you know, talking with the cast and thinking about our characters and what motivates us. And like, that was all this psychology. Like, I like the actual peeling of the onion. I don't want people watching me. I don't want an audience. And it was like really at that moment where I was like, oh yeah, I'm not a performer. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. really when it became apparent to me and psychology has always really interested me. And I'm obsessed with learning what motivates people and why people do what they do, which is why I will watch any and every crime drama that's ever existed on TV. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I've been become sort of into the crime dramas too. And like, right. yeah. It's like, why do you do this? What, what provokes you to do this? But I just feel that way about everything. And I love watching the process of a creative person. I love watching it. I just don't like to, I don't have my process <laughs> as I don't see myself <laughs> as having a creative process. I like helping other people get through their creative process. Mm, that's beautiful. So I want to kind of shift gears for a second and talk about like some money stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm curious like how this comes up for your clients. Um, do you, is there like one thing that you see, you know, with your clients or people who are just like asking you questions on any of like master classes that you run or stuff like that, that you see as like, um, I don't know what I want to say, like a common belief or a common habit um, around money and like dealing with money as, as an artist. And in this case, a musical artist. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, there's two things that mainly stick out all the time. It's the scarcity mindset, because again, it's what the industry tells us. Like if you're not signed to a label, you're a poor independent musician. And that's the only thing that, you know, the only way you get money is if a label uh, signs you. And the funny thing about that is most majority of the artists that are signed to labels, besides maybe like the 2% we see on TV, um, are more poor than the independent musicians because they're still paying back the label for every single thing. Um, you know, I have plenty of friends that are independent musicians that make, you know, five, uh, five figure months uh, consistently. And they're doing it all on their own terms and they don't owe any money to anybody. Um, and so the first thing is that they just believe if they're not signed to a label, they're destined to be poor. Um, and the other thing is they're a musician, so they must suck at managing their money. Like before they even try, like before I'm even like, well, have you, do you even have a system? Have you even tried to, you know, um, manage and like understand how much you should be putting away for taxes? And they're like, no, I don't know. I just, I do music. Like I can't, um, there's no way I'm going to be able to figure that out. And it's really interesting to me 
um, because I had my own limiting beliefs about money and that was a huge one that like, well, I'm in the music industry. I shouldn't be in this for money. You know, I'm in it for the love of music. Um, and I'm in it because I don't care about money. Otherwise I would have been working in the finance district. Um, but that's so, that's so silly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you can make, there's plenty of music and money, um, plenty of money in music. Sorry. Um, and you, you know, you just have to be able to understand again seeing yourself as an entrepreneur you provide a service and so just like other people are constantly saying well who are your fans who are your fans that's your target market that's your avatar that's your customer we're just not used to in this industry thinking of them in those terms and artists often feel guilty thinking of fans as customers and it's like well think about all the money you spend on the artists you love growing up you don't think twice. Like I didn't think twice. I blew any allowance I had all went to CDs at the mall. I never bought new clothes. I'd go to school in clothes that had holes in them, but I had like 300 CDs, you know, by the end of the school year, because that's what I cared about. And that's what I valued. And so you didn't think twice about giving your favorite artists money. So your fans don't worry about them. They want to give you money. It's just that they don't want to give you money for a CD anymore. They want to give you money in other ways. They want to give you money to, you know, help host you on a tour. They want to buy your merchandise. They want to buy experiences with you and maybe like a Skype call or, you know, hanging out somewhere when you tour through their town. They want to, um, you know, help you crowdfund and just donate so that you can record your next couple of singles. Um, it's all in different ways that they want to give you money. And so, uh, it, musicians just need to overcome that stigma as if it's like bad, like you're, you know, you can't care about the art and money at the same time. And that's just not true. What's funny is um, another conversation, uh, you know, another conversation on this podcast was like this, this keeps coming up this theme of like, um, you know, that this is a belief that like, you can't care about the money and be an artist. Right. Um, but meanwhile, you can't create as an artist if you don't have financial support. Right. Like you literally can't do it. Right. There's like and as no, artists, like you, need you the resources. all, yeah, I mean, you all, I mean, as writers, you know, like you write wonderful scripts and you also, I'm sure, really enjoy going to the movies or, you know, paying for Netflix and Hulu to, you know, take in all of that wonderful art you know the tv and films that are out now there are some really that there's some really great art out there and just because it's commercial or popular doesn't devalue it and so if you don't think that way as a consumer you shouldn't think that way as a creator because your fans aren't thinking that way yeah and like entertainment is so valuable you know right. like we need it as humans i believe that we need art and entertainment that it's like a critical part of our mental health and like yes um, our social, our social health. Yes. Um, one of the things that's coming up around this too, that I keep thinking about is like, and I know that I've struggled with this as, as an, as a writer and someone who identifies as an artist that like some of it is, Oh, I feel guilty charging money. Like mm -hmm. I shouldn't want to, but I think the other piece is like the quantifying the value you deliver um, which I think is hard for entrepreneurs too, right? Like that's just, I think that's, that's like a common struggle of like, you have to put value on something that 
that can feel so personal and so attached to you right. that it, it like brings up all these other questions around, around like what you're worth and like, you know, and this, it's a fascinating thing in art and like any, anything like that. It's like, how do you put, how do you, how do you decide what it's worth? How do you, you know, ascertain of like the valuation of, of creative work? Yeah. And you know, it's so interesting. Um, you know, as you're saying that I'm kind of also realizing like it's a whole, it's a shift in mindset. And so if you look at it as I'm not putting a dollar sign on here to, to value the art itself, I'm putting a dollar sign on here to value the experience that somebody's going to get by enjoying this art. So if you put the value on what that person, the joy or the enjoyment that that person is getting from your art, rather than seeing it as valuing the art itself, you know, it's a, it's a subtle but important shift in how you look at it. Um, and so I think that that's important that, as you said, you know, when you create music or you write something that somebody's going to read and enjoy, you're helping their mental health. You're helping them survive that particular day or escape whatever they're dealing with right now. And that has value. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's hard, but crucial for us to separate ourselves once the art is complete to then put the business hat on and say, how is this serving my community? And there's value in that. So what is that value? What do you think is the biggest challenge um, that you see musicians having around like taking off the artist hat and putting on the business hat? You know, like, especially when they've kind of, what I'm hearing is that there's this resistance around like, well, I'm just not good with money, you know, right. and like, I'm just, I'm just not the business person. So like, I can't take responsibility for that or like yeah. put my, put my <laughs> brain, like put that hat on my brain, put that thinking cap on. So yeah. <laughs> as my mother, the kindergarten teacher would say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, um, yeah, there is totally a resistance to it, which is why a lot of what I do, you know, I push that whole musicpreneur mindset. Um, and it, the fact of the matter is it, it is, it's this resistance and a little bit of, of it is lazy. I mean, like my industry peers will always, oh, musicians are so lazy. And I'll say, well, yeah, it's a little bit of laziness because sure, if somebody else could do it, you know, wouldn't you want them to if it's not stuff that you enjoy? But it's also, you know, being raised in an industry that told you you can't or that you're too dumb or you're too creative, like that this isn't your wheelhouse. This is somebody else's. So go hire them to do it for you. But if you can't hire somebody at this point, or as I always tell musicians, you might not be at a point in your career right now where there's anything for the person you hired to do. <laughs> you know, there's, you can't give 10% to a manager when there's nothing to, to uh, you can't give 10% of zero. <laughs> so if you're, you know, still new in your journey and, you know, then you have to figure out how to book shows for yourself. You have to figure out how to market yourself to your fans properly. And so I just think that they've never been shown that that's something that they can do. So they don't even bother thinking about it. And like I said, it's part laziness too. It's, you know, I just want to do my music. I don't want to do this. And I always say to them, that's fine. If you don't want to pay attention to the business, then you have a very expensive hobby. And I think that's great. Then, you know, invest in your hobby. Let it be that for you. Go work your day job. And that's great. If you want to make money off of it, then you have a career 
and a career means you have to embrace the business side. So, I mean, there is some tough love there that it's just like, this is a business just like anything else. And you, you're not entitled to succeed in this industry or any industry for that matter. So if you want to succeed in it, you have to be willing to get your hands dirty and understand things that might be new to you and might take you longer to understand than, than other people. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with making mistakes and figuring it out as you go. Um, so there, there's that whole component to it. But um, uh, sorry, I feel like I went like a little off track, but it's- No, you're great. But a lot of what I, what I hear constantly, in fact, I might actually- name my second book this, this was definitely a contending title is, can't you just do it? Because I hear that almost every time I sit down with an artist where I'm just like, well, you know, here's your social media. Like, let's go through, you know, how you're going to plan out your social media. Like, can't, can I, can't you do it? Can somebody, can somebody do this for me? And I'll say, oh, I'm sorry. Am I supposed to care about your career more than you do? Like, no, (laughs) these are your fans. You need to talk to them. And it doesn't mean that you can't hire it out to somebody else as you grow. But if you're starting at square one, you know, you have to embrace it and say, you know what, I'm going to earn this. You know, I'd rather see you pay your dues that way than pay your dues trying to pull all nighters, you know, to prove what, you know, what is, you know, to sleep shame somebody else. Like that's not paying your dues. Paying your dues is, you know what, I'm going to give this a go. I, I care about my career. Nobody can care about it more than I do if I want to succeed. And so I got to know how, you know, how the, the meal is made. I need to know how the sausage is made. Um, and I got to, I got to figure it out. What's your biggest piece of advice around like creating balance, particularly around, you know, let's say you are an artist who like, isn't in the place where you're paying a manager 10% because you're paying them 10% of nothing. (laughs) And so you are like, okay, I'm doing this money hustle and you know, this is what I'm doing for cash flow, And like, this is where I have time to create my music. And then, you know, also like these business aspects, you know, what, how do you guide people around, you know, creating work-life balance when, you know, their creative work isn't bringing in the revenue? Yeah. Yes. Um, the, I have two words that I say to everybody and that it's, it's funny. It's kind of does the same thing after I say, well, you know, why do you want this? There's, there's always a big long pause of like, huh? Um, when I say these two phrases, uh, monotasking, which is the opposite of multitasking and microtasking. So the whole thing, the whole point, as, as you had said before, slow the fuck down, So if you are doing it all yourself, you know, it's very counterintuitive. People think, well, if I don't have a team, then I have to pull the all-nighters and I have to work super fast and I have to really hustle, hustle, hustle because I'm the only one doing everything and it all needs to get done by like tomorrow. And the thing is, if if you're not working with a team, you do need to slow down and you do need to learn how to do certain things, uh, new skill sets that you're probably not used to doing. You do have to make time for doing things wrong and doing them over again because they're going to be new to you. Um, You do have to give time to um, the fact that if you're not pulling in an income yet from your, uh, you know, creative endeavors that you're probably going to have, you know, another daytime gig. Um, So you have to make time for that. Uh, You can't burn the candle at both ends. So you do have to pace yourself. And so monotasking, you know, uh, 
bunch of studies, study after study has shown that multitasking is in fact impossible. Um, the only magic unicorns that I think can multitask are moms. Um, so I have, you know, it's I'm, like a survival gene, right? Exactly. <laughs> and it doesn't mean, you know, and like you said, they're surviving. It doesn't mean they're doing everything at a hundred percent. Right. They're not um, like doing, they're not like writing a fucking opera. Right. <laughs> exactly. They're like feeding a kid and wiping another kid's ass at the same time. They're just, they're just keeping them alive. Like, and right. that's wonderful and more power, power to all the moms out there and all the parents. But, um, but really though, multitasking is, um, scientific impossible. Our, our brains cannot do two functions at the same time. So if you want to do things right, if you want to really nail that pitch, that email that you're sending somebody, don't, you know, be checking Facebook and, and doing that pitch or running errands and food shopping while you got your phone out, texting them, you know, texting an email on your phone. Um, you know, give give the proper time and attention to the things that matter. And when you start to monotask, and um, I, w I did an interview with CD Baby a couple of months ago and we actually did kind of like a live consultation where I broke down. Uh, I think we determined if you have a day job, you basically have maybe four hours max each day to give towards, you know, your personal time and your, and your um, passion, you know, your, your passion that you want to turn into a career. So, you know, if you get eight hours of sleep, which you should be aiming for, and you work your day job and you add in travel time and you add in all these things, then you're down to about four hours um, each day that you can possibly, if you're really pushing yourself, give to your passion. So when you monotask and you really realize you only have a certain amount of hours to do certain things, the priorities rise to the top. You really start to see, well, what's the most important thing on my list right now? What's the thing that's going to get me closest to my goal once you're clear on what your goal is? And so now you're going to microtask. Now you're going to break these things down. And I always use posting a YouTube video as an example. If you have on your list, and I see this all the time, and I've done this myself, you're like, I need to put a YouTube video up and it stays on your list and it stays on your list and it doesn't get done and you keep pushing it back. But if you break it down and you say, okay, there are about at least 10 steps to putting a YouTube video up. I have to, you know, come up with a title. I have to write a script or an outline. I have to set up the camera and the lights. I have to record it. I have to edit it. I have to upload it. I need to come up with social media posts to promote it. Like all those little things, when you start to microtask it out, when you're sitting on a train, and you've got 10 minutes while you're there, well, you could write a title, you could outline your video, or you could write some social media posts for when it's ready. Um, when you, you know, you can start batching <laughs> and do multiple videos. If you set up your camera and your lights, you could sit there and knock out a few videos at once. So when you start to microtask and break down the components of a larger project, you'll realize that those 10 minutes you were waiting online at the doctor's office to be seen or you know, the time you were sitting in traffic on the subway or bus, you could actually be doing little things to move those projects forward rather than, well, I didn't have time for that. You do have time. You just don't realize where that time can be best used. So um, those two things I think are the biggest um, in, in at least beginning to find a balance is to figure out your priorities and then figure out when you can get those priorities done throughout your day and and that to me is the whole working smarter, not harder. You don't have to give up sleep. You just have to realize, well, if I'm twiddling my thumbs in a waiting room, maybe there's something I can be doing. 
Right. They're in the waiting room because they got sick from working too much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. Do clients ever come to you like, yes, I have four usable hours and <laughs> I also like want to be in a relationship and do things for, for fun. Right. Um, do you feel like it's possible to have all, to do all of it? I do. You just have to like, here's the thing. So like, obviously everything comes at a price and you do mm -hmm. have to be realistic about it. I mean, if, you know, if you look at somebody like a Beyonce or a Britney Spears or any type of like really mega star out there, they didn't have, you know, uh, a social life. They didn't, you know, see their friends. They had drill sergeant uh, people on their team and they were, it was round the clock building an empire. Now, that's why I always start out with the why with my clients because if they say to me, well, that's what I want. I'm like, well, I hope you realize what those people have sacrificed not only in their lives, but you know, we've seen what happened to Britney Spears and, and so many other artists coming forward with you know, mental illness and um, the things that have happened due to what they've sacrificed and how long they've sacrificed it. Uh, it does have an impact on your psyche. So if that's the path they want to go down, you know, I really make sure that they understand what they're signing up for. And majority of the time, my clients will say to me, well, no, I just, I, I just want to pay my bills with my music. You know, I just want to be able to, to do this and, and feel like I don't have to work at Target too. And so I say, okay, well then let's work out your income streams. And then let's be realistic about it. You know, if you're going to build a career, if you could, you know, you could work at Target 40 hours and, you know, pay your bills, then, you know, you know you're not going to have a mansion tomorrow. But if that was enough for you right now, if that feels good to you, if that's your um, milestone that you're working towards, well, then let's work 40 hours at your music career. And then you have the rest of the time to devote to a significant other your own time, your family time, you know, whatever it might be. So just being realistic as to, you know, what does success mean to you and what's the, what's it worth to you? Like, what are you really going to give up? And I think once I sit down with clients and I let them know, okay, well, if, if you're going to put a very high, if you're going to set a very high bar and you're going to say, well, I want to go on tour for eight months and I'm going to do this, this and that and you work hard enough to make it happen, okay, but post-tour depression is a real thing. That's actually what, how I got my start with this. I started helping friends of mine that had severe post-tour depression. When you come off the road and your boyfriend or girlfriend hasn't seen you in months, you still need to find a new job for when you're back at home. Your apartment has gotten trashed because you sublet it to somebody out of desperation. Um, you, you know, don't know how to function now that you're not living out of a suitcase. I mean, like that stuff is real. So if you're going to try to rush through all that stuff, you're going to burn out and you're not going to get what you set out to do. So I always tell them work-life balance, be um, mindful of, of what you truly want in this business. And if that involves a significant other and friends, then you have to set realistic expectations about how fast you're going to reach a certain goal. And there's no shame in that. You know, I'd rather reach a goal a little bit slower and have somebody to celebrate it with than, you know, plow through, reach it in, in a sooner time, which is what I did with school. I graduated in three years from undergrad and a year and a half from my master's. And my 20s, I didn't date at all. Like, I did not have a boyfriend. I did not ha see my friends. I did not spend time with my family. 
And then at the end of it, I got my diplomas and I was like, oh, I can't even tell you what my family members are up to these days. And so what was that worth to me? So you have to decide that. Mm-hmm. What do you think um, in, in becoming an entrepreneur yourself, what have been like the biggest beliefs around money that you've personally had to like overcome or kind of like crack open? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I saw a video recently. I'm not going to get too into it because I don't want to quote it uh, incorrectly, but I was learning that as children, uh, the reason, you know, we tell ourselves certain stories about money or about anything um, and always ends up going back to our childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, I think, six processes in the brain that grow in our brain over time. And, and when we're between three and six, we only have two brain processes developed so far. And the beta process, the second one, takes everything in as fact. So like that's why kids can learn languages really quickly. And that's why like they absorb everything like a sponge because everything just gets memorized. And so when I was younger and I was around that age, you know, I'd get an allowance and get like maybe three or five dollars and I'd lose it. Like I'd misplaced it. I'd leave it fall on the couch. Um, I'd leave it somewhere. My brother would snatch it when I wasn't looking. Um, and, you know, my dad would always tease me like, oh, you are so bad with money. Or like, you're, you know, you're so irresponsible with your money. You're, you know, all these like different things. And, you know, just set as a passing comment, but that solidified in my brain. Like he wasn't trying to, you know, brainwash me or thinking that he was telling me anything, but I truly believed, okay, I'm, my name is Sue and I'm bad with money. Like that mm-hmm. was just something that I internalized and it went, um, you know, well into my adult life that even when I did manage money really well, um, and my mom is constantly reminding me that I manage money really well. I mean, I've, I've lived on my own since I was 18 and I have, you know, managed to uh, do a lot on my own, but I still had that story. I'm bad with money and there was no evidence to really back it up. Um, it was just something that I told myself. So, you know, I think for anybody, um, no matter what industry they're in, you have to really look at your relationship with money and look at how do I see myself in regards to money and why is that? And what evidence do I think backs that up or not? And so I did a lot of money mindset work. Um, Marie Forleo's, uh, you know, always saying like, say that mantra, there's more where this came from. And for about a year, I said that every time I made a purchase, I take a deep breath in and I'd say, there's more where that came from. And it really created a huge shift for me. Um, and more money started coming in. Um, I started believing in myself, saying certain mantras to myself, like you can do this, you deserve this money. Money is a good thing. You're going to treat this money well. You're going to be responsible with this money. And really just every day saying those things to myself over and over again, truly shifted how I deal with money. Um, and you know, then I was able to pay myself for the first time last year, um, Woo-hoo! on a full salary, like actually pay all my bills and pay everything without having to put it on a credit card or having to, you know, feel like I had to take an odd job here and there. And I could have probably done it sooner, but I was bad with money. Like that's what I told myself. So I didn't pay myself because shame on me, I'm bad with money. Mm-hmm. And I finally was like, no, you deserve this. And I finally started paying myself before I did anything for my business. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a huge shift. And I, I think it's, you know, we have to 
give ourselves permission to forgive what we were told as children. Nobody was trying to, you know, for, um, at least in my circumstance, no one was mentally abusing me and, you know, trying to make me feel like I couldn't be good with money, but it's just something that I internalized as a child. And I don't have to, I don't have to use that as my, my lens anymore. Mm-hmm. Totally. So I have uh, one more juicy question. Yes. And that question is, if you had $5 million, like tax-free, and it was deposited <laughs> in your account next week, it just showed up and it was yours and there was like no strings attached, no taxes. It was just yours to use as a resource. What would you use that money for? Oof. Um, I, so I, I would put about a million away for you know, just a rainy day, just having that as a nice cushion. Um, and then I would use the rest of it. Um, I, I, I def, I love buying gifts for people. So I would certainly, and my family has been very supportive of me. So I would certainly try to do nice things for them, take them on vacation and stuff like that. Um, you know, I've, I've learned that's important when you have money, it's meant to be enjoyed. Um, but I would also use a huge chunk of it to, start a, um, a, a center for, for adolescents. I think it's crucial to have a safe space to go and feel empowered and be yourself and be creative and, and express yourself in any way that you need to. And I feel that, you know, um, and, you know, it's very timely as of right now, unfortunately, but I always felt this way, even in high school myself, that adolescents are kind of like the forgotten people in our society like we you know we dote on all the children and then we you know make the adults work really hard and and then the adolescents are just kind of like you know oh they're the misfits you know they we don't really pay attention to them and i i've always wanted to create uh, a a youth center that you know provides a a safe haven for for kids just to go and be themselves and and self-express so that's always something that i've wanted to to really invest in I love that. Maybe we can do that together when we Oh my god. I'm when dead. we have when we have 5 million tax free <laughs> yes. no strings attached dollars or when we or when we accumulate that money from investors because that's a worthy cause. Exactly. I'm down. Um, I'm down. Awesome. Are there is there a, um, a parting piece of advice that you would like to leave our creative listeners with? I would just say be easy on yourselves. You know, we set these deadlines of, you know, I need to do this by the time I'm this age or, you know, this needs to be better. How come I'm not better at this yet? We all do it on all different levels. Um, and just be kind to yourselves. You'll get there. And, and your timeline is your timeline and it's nobody else's. And I think it's taken me a while to learn that for myself. So I hope that everybody else takes time to learn that as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Suze. It's been so fantastic having you on today. This has been a seriously epic episode and I'm just so grateful. Thank you so much. Um, is there any, is there any, um, didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I want to know if there's like, where can, where can listeners find out more about you, um, and experience more of you and you, and your amazingness too? (laughs) Well, I do have a weekly podcast. It's called the Musicpreneur Mindset Podcast. And it's all about, you know, pretty much everything that we talked about today. It's, you know, giving yourself permission, drawing boundaries, um, and seeing yourself as an entrepreneur 
uh, in this business. So that comes out every Wednesday. There's a new episode, Musicpreneur Mindset Podcast. And um, I'm everywhere on social media as Rockstar Advo. Awesome. So is there, um, where would they go for the Musicpreneur podcast? And I can, oh. I'm going to put this link in the show notes too. So for anyone who wants to go listen in, um, listen in and, and subscribe to Suze's podcast, I will make sure to get the links too. But is there a specific domain that they can, that they should go to? Sure. Thank you. Yeah. It's on every app, Spotify, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio. Um, but it's also on my website at therockstaradvocate.com forward slash podcast. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Creatives Making Money. And if you enjoyed today's episode, do not go anywhere without subscribing to the show. And also remember that after the show, it's the after party. Hello. (laughs) We do a weekly after party on Facebook Live every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Each week, I will be jamming there live on special actionable takeaways for you from that week's episode. So go to creativesmakingmoney.com slash after party to join us. And if you're looking to connect with more listeners and like-minded creatives, you totally can. Part of the purpose of this podcast is to create conversations conversation and my biggest hope is that you continue the convo in our private online Facebook lounge. So you can head to creatorsmakingmoney.com slash group to join the free group. And as always, you can also find all of the important links and details from this week's episode in this week's show notes. This week's episode's show notes are available at creativesmakingmoney.com slash Suzanne P. That's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-P. Do not hesitate to head over there now and grab all of the important links and goodies that Suzanne mentioned. And as always, create like you mean it.